if you haven't reflected on it and you're just taking someone else's view of the good, you are a slave. And as a slave, you're not human. Uh, the publisher thought it would be a good idea maybe to uh, have a pen name because it might protect me in case there were some disgruntled people and they might want to break my leg or, or something uh, worse. <laughs> Welcome back. It's been a little while since the last episode, but we're back, and I hope to add episodes a little more frequently from now on. There are three excellent episodes just waiting to be released, and the first one in line is a conversation I recently had with Michael Boyland. Michael Boyland is professor of philosophy at Marymount University, and he's one of those philosophers that leaves you feeling inferior, given a publication record counting more than 20 books and 100 published articles. On top of that, Boyland is also a novelist and a poet. Perhaps most interestingly, and this is something we spent a lot of time discussing in today's episode, is Boylan's attempt to combine literature and philosophy. For instance, in his Philosophy and Innovative Introduction, Michael Boylan and his co-author Charles Johnson explain philosophical ideas by means of fictional stories starting central philosophers in hypothetical scenarios. According to Boylan, there are just certain things that cannot be taught by means of nonfiction, and the value of such knowledge has of course been very contested through the history of philosophy. We talk about this and several other topics in today's episode, and I hope you'll find it interesting. Before talking to Michael, I should note that my philosophy department makes a guest appearance of sorts in this episode as well, since they were having a jolly good time eating cake and laughing just outside my office door. I really hope this won't distract from the creative and enthusiastic stylings of Michael Boyman. Enjoy! Yeah, so I was fascinated by this fact that you uh, already at college wrote, directed, and produced your own plays, and that you had a novel published before you graduated. Uh, so yeah, I was wondering, this interest of yours in literature, where mm -hmm. did it come from? Well, I probably uh, owe it to my mother, because she was an actress. I used to, she would pull me to rehearsals, and so I saw rehearsals in many, ah. uh, many plays. And uh, when you go to rehearsals over and over again, you start memorizing lines. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a good thing to memorize things. Uh, she was also responsible for some of my interest in literary style, because her um, notion was that you could become a better writer by copying good writers. Okay. So she would make me copy... Uh, our uh, day, I would copy who she thought was a good writer. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then she would look at it to see if I was accurate, uh, to collate the words and so forth. Right. An and hour then, a day on a regular basis? Yes. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, probably from about the age of seven uh, years old. And so, um, and she liked it if I read it after I had written it out mm. and kind of said it to myself as I'm copying because that makes it easier to copy. Right. Do you remember were there any ones that really made an impression back then? Well, some of the 19th century uh, stylists uh, were, uh, she particularly liked, and so I was learning that style. They were trying to move in the 19th century. They were kind of caught in the Victorian era of very uh, flowery language, and they were, tr they were trying to move towards a kind of a moder modernist trimming down of the language. Mm -hmm. So I think I was trying to do the same thing. Right, and that eventually led you to doing a master in English literature on moral judgment in Paradise Lost. Yes. That's an intriguing subject. Yes, and that really was my uh, decision to, to change from uh, English to philosophy because I noticed that I was using the text uh, more instrumentally than I probably should be if I wanted <laughs> to be an English right. major because I was trying to, I, I got into the Talmud and looking at the, the uh, commentaries uh, on the, uh, the story. And there certainly are a lot of spin-offs. You know, who who knew what and when uh, is a big uh, t topic, and what would be the consequences? You know, was Eve ever told, for example, not to eat the apple? If yeah. not, then we blame <laughs> Eve. You know, she gets the worst rap out of it. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and yet, you know, she doesn't get any direct. We assume that Adam chatted with her, but what if he didn't? You know, it's uh, uh, and is there any mistake that? that Eve spouts uh, the uh, Enlightenment talk in Paradise Lost and, right, yes. and, uh, and, and so forth. So 
it, it, all those uh, were quite interesting, but I was really taking it to ethical judgment, you know, how, how we could, what, what could we say about each of them? And, you know, if, if you have no knowledge of good and evil, how can you be held accountable for doing something so, so-called evil? Yeah, precisely, yeah. And unless you're a divine command theory, but how would you know that divine command theory is right? Because that, again, is <laughs> a knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it seemed there were certain problems in the story, and I was interested in looking at them, and I thought, you know, the problems are more interesting at this point than the story. So I said, let's go into philosophy. Right. Did you have a background in philosophy before this, a bachelor? A uh, bachelor uh, major, uh, a double major. I was English, finished English major, so why not do something else? I was going to do either biology or philosophy, so mm-hmm. I did philosophy because I had equal number of courses to kind of just take, you know, kind of uh, every course one or the other and, and just try to finish up a major at the last minute. Yeah, so your PhD in philosophy, what was the topic there? Uh, you, I should know this, but I forgot it just now. It was uh, a method and practice in Aristotle's biology. So it's, it's oh, ancient right, Greek yes. science, right. and in particular, uh, Aristotle's uh, biological science. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to see how many principles and methodology would carry over into modern philosophy of science. Right. And my conjecture was quite a few, because I was thinking that, that the way that you think about nature and the external world uh, is kind of timeless. And and so the details about the science were less important to me, though they obviously have to be set down, but they're less important than how you got there. And I still think that. So I'm, I'm in the process of uh, working up a book soon on uh, uh, the origins of ancient Greek science. Mm-hmm. Is that partly a way of trying to defend Aristotle? Uh, because he's being criticized for some of his... So somewhat outrageous views on yeah, but those are the conclusions. You know, yeah. the, the, uh, what interests me uh, then and as of now is how you get there. Yeah. And and so it's less interesting that he made mistakes. He made in the history of animals a number of great observational uh, uh, coups, and uh, so he was a, a good observer. Mm-hmm. I think in Germany, field guide of biology. He had a, still a few uh, as far as up until early 1980s there, that, that had come from Aristotle. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was the first one to de- discover you know, how uh, uh, squid and, uh, reproduced, and <laughs> <Right>. that, wasn't, <laughs> uh, that was not uh, verified until 1959. Wow. So he was a good observer, but you need more than observations. I mean, there are a lot of good observers in the ancient world, mm-hmm. but the trouble is they didn't have uh, uh, some sort of method of describing things. Right. No experimental method as well, I guess. Well, you know, and uh, as you know in Fr- uh, French, you say experience means both just kind of immersing yourself in the in experience mm-hmm. as well as experiment. Right, yeah. And so he's really more the former than the latter. I see, uh, yeah, yeah. But that, there's there's such a dichotomy in English, uh, you see, but mm-hmm. it's not so much in the, in the, you know, in the French word. So mm-hmm. I think that's where empyrea is where he's coming from. And that's, has that same sensibility. Right. Yeah. It's also interesting that you mentioned biology because, uh, you basically accredited philosophy of biology with almost saving philosophy. Well, yes. I mean, they, they, they were, uh, uh, logical empiricists were, uh, you know, involved in a kind of a mathematical model. As you know, we had the turn of the 20th century and Russell Whitehead, uh, mm-hmm. their a book on Principia Mathematica, you have Russell's famous response to uh, Frege on the uh, the problem of uh, the sets uh, of everything, a problem, and, and then his own paradox that comes out of that. And these are interesting, but but they but they don't necessarily resonate because physics and mathematics you can do and believe that the objects don't exist if you want to right. yeah. the sets <laughs> might not exist numbers might not exist so you're de- dealing with something rather different when you go into biology because it's hard to say that things that are alive don't exist yeah true. uh unless you're bishop barkley uh, <laughs> uh, but you know the uh many of the problems you know uh say the the uh, raven paradox and so forth are interesting mental exercises, mm-hmm. but they really don't tell us ultimately much about confirmation theory right. uh, because, you know, the Washington Monument ends up being a confirming incidence that all ravens are black. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's uh, rather silly. Yeah. Uh, the reductionist hypothesis, uh, the unity of science reductionist hypothesis mm-hmm. that moves all, you know, physics to the lowest level. Uh, then we have everything becomes chemistry. 
and uh, chemistry is applied physics. Mm -hmm. Physics is you know applied mathematics. So and possibly you know the, some of the latecomers still loving Logis's thesis. It all becomes logic. It, it's cute. It's a nice little structure, architecturally pretty. Yeah. Uh, an aesthetic concern that they probably won't want to acknowledge, mm -hmm. but uh, you know it, it moves away from what is. Yeah. And and philosophy of biology single-handedly with feedback loops and top-down causation destroys the reductionist hypothesis, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that was very fortunate. Right. That's interesting because another uh, discipline that is often used against reductionism are things like poetry and literature. How, mm -hmm. how on earth can we reduce that all the way down to atoms and molecules and, and matter? Um, so I want to say, talk a bit more about this connection between philosophy and literature mm -hmm. as well. Um, you've written several books where you... Um, sort of consciously try to use alternative methods uh, to use more narratives in order to explain philosophical ideas. Uh, could you say a bit more about that method? Sure. There's, there's, there's two aspects of, of it. One would be uh, thinking of it by, from the general practitioner's side. Uh, I think that, that literature has two parts to it. One is uh, a sort of literature that is uh, uh, imitative of nature and uh, much of genre fiction is like that. Uh, detective fiction, they try to imitate the, the detective in some sort of mm -hmm. uh, uh, mode, and, and you solve a crime, and, and the bad guys get caught, and, and you say, good, let me get the next one. And, uh, and the romance novel, and, uh, and the uh, kind of the love story, you know, X is, is uh, uh, engaged to Y, but then meets Z and says, maybe I wasn't right to get engaged to Y after all. <laughs> and, 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 and therefore, uh, you have a little uh, romantic comedy that's, uh, and you get these various kind of plots. That, there is, in fact, I think, and uh, I don't know the name of the program, but uh, several years ago in the United States, they took several of these genre types, and all you have to do on the program that once you buy it, is is name your characters, yeah. name which of the four or five sub type plots you want, right. situated in a city, name some places they, on the prompts, uh, and then it writes it for you. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's that's the imitative or genre uh, uh, sort, and then the other is philosophy that tries to make a claim, and I call it fictive narrative philosophy. Mm -hmm. And a fictive narrative philosophy, I think, exists on three levels. One is a really didactic novel, uh, and that would be like uh, uh, Aesop's Fables. Uh, right. Uh, many versions of Aesop's Fables, in fact, even tell you what the point is at the end of the fables, yeah. in case you uh, uh, didn't figure it out. <laughs> uh, many children's stories are like this, and, and certainly uh, the, uh, the theme, or what they're trying to, the claim they're trying to make, overwhelms the story. The story is, is just like trappings on the theme. Mm -hmm. um, then you have them in the second level where they're equal, uh, the the claim and the story are equal, mm -hmm. and then there's a third level is when the uh, story overpowers the uh, message, and you have to be fairly talented reader, maybe even to find out the message, and there might be some disagreement on the message because right. it's so it's so uh, encaptured. Uh, most people from literature find that to be the most artful, uh, right. that third third level. It's a it's a it's perhaps a sad uh, uh, commentary. Uh, that that people who are philosophers and have a body of work in philosophy can never aspire to more than the second level because you can always read their philosophy back into their literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and therefore, Sartre or Iris Murdoch and others, uh, my collaborator Charles Johnson, uh, have a, a problem there because mm -hmm. they, you can read back into their fiction. Right. Uh, so that's that's the kind of the presentational side. Uh, the second uh, large uh, uh, category is teaching. And uh, recently, uh, Charles Johnson and I wrote a book on teaching philosophy, uh, and we call it Philosophy and Innovative Introduction. Uh, had a rather interesting origin because uh, we've been correspondents, Charles and I, for uh, 30 years. For those listeners who don't know, Charles Johnson uh, has a PhD in philosophy, but has taught most of his career creative writing because he was a National Book Award winner and MacArthur Award winner. Uh, winner in the United States, and the National Book Award in the United States is the highest award we give for books, mm -hmm. and he was one of the only two African Americans ever to win in fiction. Right. Wow. And uh, he, he's also a Buddhist, which is, yeah. throw that into the uh, <laughs> mixture. But he, send, he had sent me the story on Plato, and that he had uh, 
written, and I was taken with it because he had Diogenes uh, questioning Plato in a, after a kind of a speech to people, and he asked him about the form of the emptiness in his coffee cup. Right. And and I thought that was an interesting point, especially from a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. And yeah. And, <laughs> and so it, it, I asked him to, if he was uh, working on any others, and he was working on one on Descartes and, uh, and then uh, Siddhartha. And so we decided uh, to do this book together and take uh, six stories, uh, uh, ten stories altogether, of, of lives, points in the life of philosophers where they changed, mm -hmm. some key moments. So right. the forms of Plato would be, a, it's not exactly a historical moment that we can prove, but it was a key moment. I, oh, some yeah. of them were, are like conjectures. I have a, a, a key moment from the life of Karl Marx where I think he ceases to be a philosopher, where right. he then turns into kind of a, a politician or, or a social engineer of some sort. And, and, and I found the, from their uh, diary, from his diary, where they ate and the date that they ate. And it was in research, the restaurant a little bit, and its restaurant has chess tables. Oh, right. And so I, I imagine <laughs> them playing a game of chess. And, and, uh, and the, uh, the Marxian style of chess against the Engels style. And Engels, I had him kind of a bulldog defense, and, <laughs> and, and Marx uh, experimentally going off, and, and perhaps in ways he shouldn't, and, and gets himself hurt. And I used the 1910 World Championship in chess for the, the, which is an actual game played. Uh, so key points in that chess game, as I analyzed it, made key points in the story. And the notes at the end of the of the story, I give the whole chess game. So people, I encourage students to play the game as they're reading the story oh, right. to somebody. And so <laughs> it's meant to try to show how Engels, who wins the game, has ascendancy over Marx, and Marx ceases to be a philosopher. Right. Yes. So, so <laughs> that's, that's you know, we don't know that that ever ha happened, but it very likely could have because of the uh, the fact that they did eat lunch there, they did have chess tables there, and uh, and we I've one where. Iris Murdoch uh, is talking, you know, at the Randolph Hotel in Oxford, which is a very nice hotel, mm -hmm. uh, right across the street from the Ashmolean Museum, and they serve this great tea there, cream tea, and uh, every uh, every day, uh, somewhere between three and four, uh, people go in there and and uh, they have all these scones and gel jams and so forth, and <laughs> she's with uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who I did meet. I never met Iris, but I did meet Elizabeth Anscombe. Mm -hmm. And um, Elizabeth had this uh, Knightsbridge professorship at Cambridge, and Iris was overlooked largely because she worked in fiction. Right. And so I was kind of feeling a great deal of sympathy with yeah. her, and she's kind of the uh, protagonist of the story. Okay. And, and it's named after one of her uh, novels. It was called An Accidental Man, and the story's called An Accidental Woman. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and uh, and it, being a woman in philosophy at that time, and... and uh, Oxford was not easy. Yeah. Elizabeth Anscombe uh, is reputed to have, uh, when she was invited to Aristotelian Society, come in smoking a cigar so she could be one of the guys. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's it's interesting to see how the field develops and, and how we try to break away from kind of a, a good old boys uh, network, uh, uh, men-only uh, club and so forth, and open it up not just to different genders, but to different cultures, races, and ideas. Mm -hmm. And I've... In the talk I have on the uh, dangerous liaisons, a history of some uh, unordered pairs, I think the idea that we used to just want ordered pairs in philosophy, yeah. and 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 having some space for people that have are different mm -hmm. is is important. It's important for the discipline. It's important for it to go forward, and and I'm excited that it seems to be doing that. So many philosophers look down upon literature, I think, as a philosophical tool, at least. Uh, what do you think is the reason for that? And, and what kinds of uh, obstacles have you met? Well, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's, it maybe it comes about through a misreading of David Hume. Uh, you know, they, uh, when uh, Hume talks about, you know, things being uh, matters of fact, and uh, he, uh, a lot of philosophers say, yes, that's the, the real David Hume there. And when mm -hmm. he's talking about uh, emotions and, and basing ethics and, and a standard of taste upon emotions, most philosophers think that when he's saying that, he's denigrating uh, uh, ethics and denigrating art, yeah. saying, kind of like Aristotle says, you know, that you can't trust emotions and uh, emotions go this way and then that way. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing, for example, as emotional intelligence right. or an emotive goodwill. Right. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of 
uh, in the wind, and, and, and therefore you can't trust anything in the wind, therefore we will mistrust uh, uh, emotions. Yep. And, if, and if art is connected with that, then art is also uh, distrusted. Alan, Alan Gwerth, and uh, quoting uh, Rudolf Carnap uh, once to me, said, you know, Art is is nice. It's like the you know the whipped cream on top of a dessert. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't need a dessert. Your calorie, you know, your healthy calories are in your salad and your main course. <laughs> if you have a dessert anyway, and it's not even the dessert. It's the whipped cream on top, <laughs> schlocks, <laughs> on top of the uh, the dessert, yeah. and uh, you certainly don't need that. And, <laughs> and so it's so far removed from anything you need. It's 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 a diversion of of uh, little uh, human import. And I, uh, I would demur. I think that they're very valuable and part of leading a life that is worthwhile. There seems to be maybe another difference there as well, that at least some philosophers seem preoccupied with the, the, with the author's original intention. Yes. Whereas literary theory has more the author is dead kind of uh, sentiment. Well, there's, there's several. There's several uh, I talk about this in the last part of part, uh, The Good, the True, and the Beautiful. I put uh, towards the end there a chart of various ways that you can think of it. Uh, you know, there there can be the author's intention, certainly. Uh, most authors think that uh, as artists, as opposed to, say, writing direct uh, uh, discourse, where everyone thinks that they're in complete control of everything, mm-hmm. which I don't think, you know. So I go back to the uh, Mino and, you know, say that arete is a gift of the gods. Right. And you, you, can, you can will competence, but you can't will excellence. And for philosophers listening who are, you know, past a certain age, you, you never know what, what essay you write is going to be popular, which one will uh, appear in anthologies. Sure. You, you, you just don't know. And it's out of your ability to will. Right. Uh, and they don't want it. They want to think of themselves like making tables. You know, I make, I make my tables. All my tables stand. I can put this amount of weight on them. I know how to make a corner joint. Uh, <laughs> that, that's what doing. They want to say doing philosophy is. There's there's more art in philosophy than than many will will admit to. Right. Uh, but uh, and, and artists, uh, you know, uh, will do the same thing so that they uh, they somehow uh, almost get lost in in the art. They they keep going at it. It's almost like an actor. If you're, say, doing uh, narrative, you're almost acting in it. And just as actors can't con- completely control what they're doing, they, uh, you can't completely control. There's many things you can control. And obviously, better writers can control a lot more than uh, poorer writers can. Mm-hmm. But you can't control everything. Excellence is beyond our control. Right. And in fact, I've, since I run this poetry series now for 22 years in Washington, D.C., some of the... Uh, Artists I've seen who are like at the end of their career show so much anxiety that they sometimes can't write well, that they feel well anymore. And they're talking about giving up their writing and so forth. And I talk to them about excellence and that, that passage and they, uh, about not being, it being a gift from the gods. And it's somehow very liberating to them. Right. Uh, so it, it's, it's, uh, that part of art even goes over, I think, into all sorts of productive uh, activity. Right. Can you see a pattern in retrospect? I don't know. I mean, I, things that I, I look at my own essays or stories, uh, uh, and ones that I was really happy with sometimes aren't as popular with other people. <laughs> right. Uh, so <laughs> what makes me happy, you know, Wallace Stevens was a poet in the United States who also was an insurance executive. Uh, uh, and he uh, he says that you write for an audience of one yourself. It's also interesting that you mentioned this because you yourself wrote using a pseudonym, uh, Angus Black, if I remember correctly. Yes, um, I, I thought that was quite a, a self-deprecating name because if you know how bibliographies are written with the last name first, well, you put that last name first is Black Angus, yeah. and Black Angus is a kind of bull. Yeah. So I say in, in <laughs> English, you know, bull is thought to be you know not true or not good or something. Right, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. a it's making a little joke at myself. Oh, that's where the name comes from. Okay, I yeah. was wondering about that. But what is the background for using a pseudonym? Well, the in this particular case, uh, the the book uh, had a kind of a mystery uh, uh, thing to it. Uh, we had a uh, Irish American and an Iranian immigrant were uh, getting together and uh, kind of a, a mystery se- uh, suspense sequence in Washington D.C., uh, where I uh, live. And uh, the publisher had gotten me a uh, interview with Richard Helms, uh, who had just recently retired from the CIA and had told me about this Reagan arms deal that when he was uh, Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter for president and the Americans were diplomats were being held hostage in Tehran 
And uh, this, of course, is illegal because uh, the Constitution says only the American president can himself or his uh, designee do foreign policy. Yeah. And, and so uh, uh, the publisher thought it would be a good idea maybe to have a pen name because it might protect <laughs> me in case there were some disgruntled people and they might want to break my leg or, or something <laughs> uh, worse. And uh, so I, I agreed and, and I thought this would be a humorous name, but then it turned out not to be a very effective because so I was taking a look at uh, the new uh, library databases that were coming online. They, uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, I uh, want to see, I was told that they had bought the book, and I looked, and they said, uh, uh, Angus Black, uh, uh, see Michael Boylan. <laughs> yeah. And I figured, well, if the librarians can figure this out, if it's that transparent, <laughs> then it's not doing me, mu doing me much good. <laughs> did that create any controversy afterwards, or were you... Uh, well, it did. A couple of the reviews uh, of the book, uh, it was mentioned, uh, that, that uh, the, the contemporary reviews, you know, the ones in the first... Uh, six months after publication. So it was noticed by at least the reviewers. Right. <laughs> but not Reagan. <laughs> yes. Thank, thankfully, uh, they, they uh, probably it's because of, if it had been a huge uh, bookseller, you know, if it had been selling a million copies, yeah. it would have been noticed. So, <laughs> so in this case, uh, having, you know, lo lower sales helped me. <laughs> Blessing in disguise. Uh, that's great. Um, so the purpose of your book, uh, An Innovative Introduction to Philosophy, uh, is to teach, um, yeah, how would I summarize that? A new way of, to, a new way of presenting philosophy uh, to students uh, unfamiliar with philosophy. Right, yeah. And, and also to, for people that maybe have taken a few philosophy courses and maybe feel a little sour on philosophy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, having those four modes, you see, uh, uh, offers more alternatives. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I think that's a uh, I think that's a good thing. As I say, I've done this in the classroom, and um, you know, different approaches will uh, attract different sort of students. So the more students you can get talking about philosophy and thinking about philosophy, I think that's a a positive thing. Right? Can this be seen as a reaction against analytic philosophy as well? Because honestly, analytic philosophy can be horribly boring sometimes, especially to undergrads and so on. Well, you know, uh, analytic philosophy is is fine. It's it's just not the only way to do philosophy. Mm -hmm. So that's I guess that's another underlying message because one of the things that it, uh, analytic philosophy seeks to be is very evangelistic towards its own methodology mm -hmm. uh, to the exclusion of others. It's uh, exclusivistic. Yeah. So uh, yes, it, it th to that part it, it is. The, the word only is critical there. That, right. Uh, yes. It shouldn't be the only way. It's certainly a fine way. Uh, it's the way most of my direct discourse philosophy is done. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the only way. And and we need to have uh, uh, some respect. And, and, and the American Philosophical Association had deep problems with this in the 1980s, uh, continental philosophers yeah. were getting no uh, uh, space at the American phil philosophical meetings because they said that there wasn't philosophy. Yeah. And, and they had excluded them from the program, and there was some protests. There was also some protests on the uh, Society of Christian Philosophers because they said that Christianity was a superstition, not, uh, had nothing to do with philosophy. Mm -hmm. And so those two groups together, you know how sometimes one group you can successfully put down, they kind of formed an alliance and moved <laughs> yeah. uh, forward and got onto the program. So, right. so that after about five or six years of being having to protest, going to the meetings and protesting with real placards and things. Mm -hmm. There was a, a late guy, Ken Nicely, who uh, did this sort of thing except with uh, TV. He had a little TV and called it No Dogs and Philosophers Allowed. <laughs> a little, I don't know, did two dozen, uh, three dozen episodes or something. And he would do it live from the uh, American Philosophical Convention oh, right. uh, and talk to people who were protesting. Uh, and then later a cable feed where cable, at the time cable was very new. Yeah. And so, uh, but it it they it was overcome, and I you know I just you know it's like anything else. Freedom in capitalism, freedom into the marketplace is thought to be a good thing. You don't want monopolies, or you don't want government regulation stopping people from bringing their products to market and saying, hey, if it's a lousy idea, no one will buy it. Right. You know what I mean? So same thing. If you if you're letting people talk and and present different ideas. And if it's not useful to anybody, then no one will come to listen. You'll have a, you'll give a talk, and there will be only your mother sitting in the front row or your wife. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying to piece together sort of a coherent picture, uh, mm -hmm. and I find it <laughs> very fascinating that, uh, on the one hand, you have this uh, this emphasis on on the close relation between uh, literature and philosophy. 
At the same time, I've seen your ethics described as a type of neo-Kantian ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've also seen it described as metaphysical naturalist. Mm -hmm. And uh, in one of your books called The Extinction of Desire, uh, you're writing about a high school history teacher who, uh, who unexpectedly finds himself the beneficiary of a million dollars. Mm -hmm. And he slowly begins to uncover what is truly valuable in life through the teachings of Buddhist philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, well, first of all, let me put it this way. Uh, are you sympathetic to the Buddhist uh, philosophy in, the, in this regard? Yeah, I think that, 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 uh, that the idea that desire, you know, uh, dukkha, you have this uh, idea of getting off, uh, off balance, uh, and sometimes they, you know, they talk, they translate dukkha as pain and or suffering, but it's really more, I think, off balance, mm -hmm. and, and which is very similar to my inductive incoherence. You get oh. off balance in life, and you're not going this in the, in the right direction, mm -hmm. you know. And, and uh, you ever ever take a model train with one of the wheel or two of the wheels off the track and try to move it? It'll move, <laughs> but it doesn't move very well because <laughs> yeah. uh, it's off balance, and and so. One default answer about what is the good to which you want to aim uh, is money, mm -hmm. and and um, I was struck a number of years ago. How many years? I don't know, fifteen, something like that. Um, New York Times the lottery system in the United States just became legal in the 1970s. Before that, it was the province of organized crime only. Right. Yes. <laughs> and and so they thought, well, why should we let organized crime have all the fun and the money? So they they legalized these lotteries. And New York Times is looking at these large lottery winners, the ones who won the biggest prizes. And they looked at uh, I don't know, it was a dozen, twenty, or something large number. Uh, and they had the same kind of pattern as uh, crash victims, uh, people who had traumatic crashes where they yeah. lost their legs or, or yeah. something, and they kind of wrecked up their life. And it, it struck me. Here's a, what they're all dreaming for when they go buy this ticket, mm -hmm. that somehow change their life and make them better. And so it, it, that, that idea struck me, and, and the idea you know, of unlike Hinduism where you're renouncing desire and total abnegation, remember Siddhartha finds... Uh, uh, nirvana or his awakening when he has this milk this uh, uh, young uh, girl yeah. gives him yeah. so uh, the and that's and that's breaking a fast you know the, and, and and so forth so um, that that approach of not saying no entirely to goods but just not worshiping them uh -huh. sounded interesting to me so I thought uh, I'd create a story this would be an example of fictive narrative philosophy right in, yeah. in the in the in the work itself right so there is a lot of you as a philosopher in that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, so I, I encourage anyone listening to po podcasts to go buy the book and yes. tell me what they think. <laughs> I will do so myself as well. Yeah, um, it's on Blackwell only published two novels in their whole history, and that's one of them. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Graham Greene was the other. He's another prominent. Oh, that sounds like good company to be in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Uh, there was actually one question I wanted to ask you. Um, because we were talking about reflection mm -hmm. at your more adolescent stage. And so when you look back now at the novels and the plays you wrote back then, uh, do you see them as horribly juvenile now, or do you see sort of the the same Boylan as is now? Well, it's, it's interesting because um, uh, I actually had this conversation with my eldest son yesterday. Right. And, and um, he was asking me uh, the, uh, a while back, like about a year and a half ago, I was approached by a publisher who wanted to do Possibly, I wanted to explore the possibility of doing a collected works of my poetry because uh, I've been I've been writing published poetry since even before that novel was published, mm -hmm. wow. and and I've been writing continuously. And I said I said I think about it, and I went back and started to try to start to revise some things. And I revised particularly an introduction to my first published book of poetry called Chambers in a Heart and the Heart of Stone, and. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I realized why I couldn't. I could no longer rewrite those poems or the introduction because mm -hmm. when I rewrote them, there was two worldviews that were present, and I'd gone too far away. Uh, so, exactly, yeah. uh, so, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm thinking sometimes that I'm clearly not in the worldview I was when I was uh, 17 when I published my first poem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, <laughs> I, I can't write that or 20 or t even 25 or even 30. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. There's no exact point, but the, you pass some point where you can no longer rewrite that poem. And poems are never completed, right? I think that you just stop yep. uh, on a poem. And, yeah. 
And like that, you mentioned the extinction of desire that went through 100 drafts. <laughs> wow. So, and that took me 20 years uh, to, to do over 100 drafts over 20 years. Wow. And I was able to keep the same mindset yes. for that project. Now, another project, I might not have been in the same mon- mindset. So right. mindset sometimes isn't, isn't as holistic as that because you, you can have a mindset for something. Mm. And, and it's what, you know, it's why I sometimes call, and it's not, certainly no uh, psych, uh, psychological term, but I, I have things I think about, I think everyone does, that another mode where it's not in your, your direct attention. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, for example, uh, I'm working on some sort of problem. I have a stop on an essay. I say, oh, this is going terribly. I've got to stop. Maybe I'll throw away the essay. And, and, and then maybe I pick it up a month later and it's solved. Yeah. And it's solved just because I have been actually yes. thinking about it, but not explicitly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and and at, at a certain point, that uh, back thinking and so forth moves on. And when it's moved on, maybe that's that period where I can no longer uh, keep rewriting it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But but yeah, there's some some of those things, and I I ended up not going forward with this project. Uh, uh, I might sometime, but I couldn't do it the way they, they wanted me to do it. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about this distinction between direct and indirect truths that can mm-hmm. be uh, represented by our respectively philosophy and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kinds of truths can only be expressed through literature? Yeah, so I, I picked this up uh, from uh, Plato, which I pick up a lot of things from Plato, Aristotle. I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I believe another thing we should do when we teach is, is tell our students how many things we don't get from ourselves? So that we yeah. have that footnote, in other words, verbally footnote what we're doing, so they understand yes. they come from other people. We yeah. stand on the backs of so many. But in this case, in, uh, when I was uh, translating the uh, Timaeus, and I have this little project. Uh, every summer, I like to translate a Plato dialogue. Wow! So you read Greek as well? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and 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 uh, and so there's this section. He's very. It's it's where he finishes up. You know, talking about something being a likely story. Uh, because he thinks you cannot get uh, uh, direct empirical uh, discourse answers uh, to things. And Kant had the same idea in the antinomies. He sets out these antinomies and said, you know, many type editions, you know, have them two columns on the page, so you can see them, the arguments right next to each other. And they're, he thinks they're equally valid yeah. arguments. So his point in doing that, Kant says to say, reason can't answer this. It's it's you know beyond the bounds of sense. As in playing on Strawson's book title on, on that same topic. And uh, Plato's saying the same thing and, and the Timaeus. And, and, that, and he uses, you know, shadow language. Uh, it's in the shadows. So you, you, you can see part of it. You see something's there in the shadows, yeah. but you don't really see what exactly is there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many people who take a different approach than I uh, do would say, well, if you can't see exactly, it's not worth saying anything about it. Right. And and so uh, those would be people I call who adhere to the careful scrutiny maxim, which I describe again that good, the true, and the beautiful to be something like the Clifford uh, of King, William Kingdom Clifford approach. Okay. They, you don't want to make mistakes. Right. Your epistemological designs in life are to make as few mistakes as possible. Right. Yeah. So don't take anything into your consciousness that might be wrong, <laughs> uh, as opposed to the, the James uh, approach. You know, more of the selective. I call it the selective faith maxim. And and you're you'd rather say I don't want to lose a truth if I could get one. Yes, uh, I'll take a few errors as long as I don't want to lose any of those truths. Mm-hmm. Those are two basic life strategies, and so fictive narrative philosophy is adhering more to James because when you're looking in the shadows, you might depict that which is in the shadows incorrectly, and and therefore collect something in your consciousness that's false. Right, but you're just so you just don't want to, to lose the what is possibly true. So right. that's what drives you uh, there. And, and those things can't be given by direct discourse. So what's left is art. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the true purview of, of, therefore, art that makes claims is the artist you know, trying to give you an account of that. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be through fictive narrative philosophy. It's just what I know best. I, I could imagine, you know, you could, I uh, was uh, just uh, spent uh, uh, the two big... Uh, Art museums are sort of about two blocks apart, uh, you know, in Amsterdam. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the modern museum, they I could see a lot of people striving uh, through sculpture and painting to try to do the same thing. Yeah. And so 
I'm thinking this is in general's art, but you know, you write about what you know best. And I, I know, uh, you know, uh, stories and, and novels and poetry and plays and things like that better than I know art, even though got a lot of close friends. My, my son's an artist. Uh, best man at my wedding is a head curator at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I, I hang around people who know stuff, but I myself don't. I, I don't. <laughs> well, within your, your forms of expression, uh, what is the difference between, uh, between poetry and, and, and a novel when it comes to expressing truths? Are there different things they can do and cannot do? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very similar to the, the difference if you're writing a, a, a If you're writing a play and a novel, the, uh, a play is so fast. You know, you're writing scenes. It, it just it just moves so quickly. There's very little you can say, and you have to show everything. Yeah. And uh, so, and poetry is even more so. And uh, and poetry is very concrete. So you have to th think about the how the concreteness works. I think poetry you have to work with various sorts of styles. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I uh, tell aspiring young poets that what they should do is uh, try to write poems in at least 75 styles before they think that they're ready to write poetry. Right, yes. And, and, and learn some styles, and then they can start inventing their own styles. Right. But it's not as, there's, you know, like T.S. Eliot said, no, no verse is free. Uh, you know, you can't play tennis without a net. Mm -hmm. You have to, you know, you have to have structure, and within that structure, you play with it. Exactly, yeah. And uh, so uh, you can do, there, there are little things, you know, uh, And and you find one little message. I, I wrote a poem recently about these uh, maple seeds that come down. I don't know if you ever they they, they swing down yeah. like this and they, yeah. like a helicopter. Mm -hmm. And I wrote this. The poem was about uh, when I was a boy. I used to try to catch them and, and I'd jump after them and catch them. <laughs> and now I just watch them fall down. And like I was watching the image of myself as a boy. Here, right in front of me, are these. I'm also thinking about my aging process, and, right? And and you can, it's 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 a really quick little sliver yes. of, of of observation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not as comprehensive as you can do, you know, with a longer narrative. Mm -hmm. You can examine various uh, positions. You know, there are there are people. Uh, Faye Weldon uh, is a, a, a novelist. When I used to do book reviews for the Baltimore Sun on fiction uh, for eight years. Uh, I used to review a number of her books, and she was really in. She was the, the late part of the first vanguard of feminist writers, mm -hmm. and and she was trying to. She was a level one uh, uh, fictive narrative philosopher, right, trying yes. to make points about uh, inadequacies of the society that's you know male centric and and uh, power uh, to uh, to males, and uh, you know she was making a lot of points, and and uh, a lot of the points are very valid. Uh, I think her points were maybe were more interesting than her stories. Okay. <laughs> because, it's, because at level one, you know that they they were overwhelming her her right. stories. Right. But uh, um, I think everybody, I think philosophers also. You 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 write you write a, a piece from your own world experience, and you hope that it's true. Uh, but you can't get far beyond your world experience. Um, And and it influences how how you uh, see things, uh, and that I think that same thing happens to scientists. I think it happens to everybody. I, I'm you know this this objective subjective uh, thing is not so sharp. Right. The fact value problem is not so sharp. There there are values and facts and facts and values, and that 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 whole thing is kind of a silly argument to me, mm -hmm. and trying to to prove you're going to get to value from a fact. There's really there's really no sharp divide, and right. and so you can, in my moral status of basic goods argument, for example, it might look like I'm moving from facts about action to normative consequences, but no, I'm not solving the fact values or attempting to. The values were already there, but mm -hmm. that's because they don't naturally separate out. I mean, yeah. they're always there. So so you're just kind of emphasizing different parts of it at different times, right. and if you look at this. These facts they emphasize these values and 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 they become evident. That's very well put. I completely agree. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned you did your PhD on topics related to ancient Greek science, and that you got a book upcoming on that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. What is your interest there, and what is the main uh, thing you're trying to figure out? Well, in some ways, it's not too dissimilar to what I've just been talking about, and, and, and because the uh, ancient Greek science takes a position that things happen. 
and and they they ask themselves, uh, particularly from the medical point of view, uh, why they happened. Do they happen to you as an individual because you're an individual? In which case, the way I would treat you if I'm a physician, which is probably best understood by moderns as as something closer to a personal trainer or, or something. You know, right. they talk to you about your diet and your exercise and try to encourage you in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they didn't, you know, the extent of the surgery was like cutting off, a, you know, a little skin tag or something. Right. It wasn't very advanced. But, uh, you know, things would happen. They obviously assisted uh, in childbirth. Um, the, uh, the, you're trying to take and say, what can I have control over? And do I control it at an individual level or do I control it at a more general level? Are there things that, that, that happen to people more generally? And you had these empirics and you had the dogmatists on two sides here. In the middle were the Methodists. And they were trying to do both things, probably therefore didn't do either as well as they could. <laughs> and there seems to be some truth to both. Mm -hmm. And in modern medicine, there seems to be some truth to both. People, uh, you know, because of evolutionary theory in the modern world, we believe that uh, diversity is absolutely essential. And, and therefore, if you're looking at someone who has various symptoms, you might not be able to just type them into some sort of uh, a program and find out exactly what they have. And my uh, daughter, who's a physician, all the time, uh, the people will be arguing about diagnoses in the hospital that, on tough cases. Right. And, 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 and because she's uh, you know, uh, a brain surgeon, uh, and people she t uh, talks to and who've had traumatic accidents or illnesses often don't have too long, the time to be able to hash this out you know, might be an hour. Right. Uh, hour might mean life and death. Yeah. And and there are some things that, that that getting as much history as possible is is individualizing it, comparing it to other sorts of uh, uh, behaviors is the the general law like structure, and and so they're both they're both important. And this was this was known in ancient Greek science. One of the things that's interesting about ancient Greek science, as opposed to say, the book I did with uh, with the uh, geneticist. Uh, uh, Kevin Brown on genetic engineering and ethical issues there is that people get kind of caught up in the modern science and then they kind of forget about the the, uh, the methodology. Well, you do ancient science, the, their actual answers are kind of silly, really, mm -hmm. to a modern perspective. <laughs> so you don't get caught up in the science as that way, as so much as such. You want to think, how did they get there? How did they answer this question this way? And it's all methodological. And you're all, sometimes they mention it like Aracel and Galen. And sometimes they don't, and you have to f figure out various ways and, and what is the explanation most uh, uh, possible, and you're mm -hmm. trying to get to it. So it's, it's an interesting way of looking at, at problem solving. It's very holistic, which is like literature to philosophy uh, we were just talking about. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's, it's looking at the individualistic answers versus the general. You know, analytic philosophy tends and wants to be very general, Literature generally wants to be very particular because you have a particular character it does something to another particular character. Yeah. So you have these types of perspectives, and you hope that the reader goes through and makes some sort of uh, judgments, which uh, often supersede those just those two particular characters. Yeah. Uh, and we that's one of the, the critical stances. You know, do, is this just about say some ethnic group or racial group or religious group? Or are you saying something about the human condition? And we often like it to move up like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so it, it, there are a lot of very similar uh, sort of structural uh, uh, concerns. This, we're just substituting or specializing on medicine and, and, and how we understand what it is to be healthy in the world, right. uh, which is a, a concern for us all. We all want to be healthy. But... Uh, there are people have been writing about this over the last uh, 35 years, and there have been various, uh, and I'm sure longer, I'm just saying that there's been one set of arguments that have been kind of con uh, constrained, and a lot of the theories put forth, especially the ones that try to be very, you know, um, ob objective and universal. You know, your blood pressure is here, here, you're healthy. Uh, you, you know, your uh, blood sugar is here, here, here. It is health. They have these ranges of the various tests they do. And if you're inside the range, you're healthy. Mm -hmm. But you might not be because 
if they're all here or some of us here and some are here and that's inconsistent yeah uh, you know it doesn't it doesn't necessarily work out and some of the and some of the norm categories uh, presuppose things also you know if you want to say you're right in the middle of say a drug addict say you're talking about the group that are drug addicts and you only shoot up once a week and, and the drug addicts shoot up uh, once to ten times oh you're a healthy drug addict <laughs> yeah. you know I mean, it's your background uh, group you know uh, yeah. uh, can bias uh, how you make judgments about it and yeah. so there are certainly there are certainly problems uh, of trying to get this uh, you know biostatistical uh, objective understanding and that was the same sort of problems that the dogmatists had uh, because they rejected uh, individual understanding of people and what the people wanted out of their lives. Right. And, um, there was a, there's, he's still alive. I don't want to say he was. Uh, Edmund Pellegrino was one of the founders of uh, bioethics in the United States. And I did an interview with him for one of my books, the first edition of the Medical Ethics book, Prentice Hall, 2001. And uh, uh, he said when he was practicing medicine, uh, at the beginning of his career, he would really want to f- find out the person's story, who he's talking to. That right. is what, going back to, I, I said, all people uh, by nature desire uh, to do good. He wanted to know what the good was for them. Right, interesting. And and so, and, and, and his various diagnoses and treatment options, he would try to work them around what you thought would be a viable life. And, right. and if you were, say, a guy who just loved rock climbing, and it would be like, almost impossible for you to imagine life without rock climbing he might be involved inter, he might be willing to engage in risky uh, therapies for you to maintain your rock climbing yeah yeah of course uh, because that's so important to you mm-hmm. so that's a very it's trying to individualize your understanding of what you're doing right, and, yes. and and the medicine but when you look at an ancient greek science there's uh, so, so basically, history of Western philosophy is often described as first there was the Aristotelian worldview, the theological mm-hmm. worldview, and then we had the scientific revolution, and then got the mechanistic worldview. Uh, mm-hmm. So every kind of science before the scientific revolution was basically tainted by this theological way of looking at things. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be putting it somewhat differently. I'm going to say that first there was the uh, the idea of magic, mm-hmm. and and so. That any that the magic held a big sway, and so I'm thinking that, you know, the pre-Socratic philosophers, uh, uh, in particular, uh, were trying to move away from magic, which can be seen in uh, Hesiod and Homer, for example. Oh yeah. And and yeah. and and, you know, that approach, trying to find some sort of material explanation for why something comes to be, mm-hmm. and and so uh, that's getting to me. Aristotle is almost the end of the process, you see. Right. <laughs> Instead of the be- you know the beginning, the wrong guy. He he. It, it's kind of, um, and and the teleology can uh, though Aristotle was uh, uh, a theist, uh, he wasn't a theist that had a very intrusive God. That is, so the teleology is looked at. Say parts aren't aren't random. Every, uh, you know, nature does nothing in vain. What, whoever nature is, mm-hmm. there's some uh, disagreement on that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and um, you know, Philoponus, uh, ancient Greek commentator, seems to think it's God, uh, and Themistius it doesn't disagree. But but you know, certainly you get people like Gilbert Ryle who would really upset since he liked Plato and Aristotle to think of them in any way being able to be associated with God. Yeah. So he says, you know. He wanted to write a, a Plato without the theory of forms, mm-hmm. uh, because he that that certainly sounds like you're having a, another realm of what is, and so they were there, and um, uh, G E L uh, Owen, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people that that tried to pull out anything that that might sound otherworldly, and, and um, it's contrary to monist materialism. So you know, if that doesn't doesn't actually bother you then you can be looking back and seeing this rather differently, and they don't seem to be so far off. Aristotle seems to be answering more of a mechanical account or material account, not mechanical in the sense of the scientific revolution, but meaning things come from other actions of material natures. And part of the teleology is that parts and, and, and organs and systems uh, have a purpose. Right. So... Though he never talks about circulatory system, you know, because it doesn't come back to the heart, but it goes out and gets used up, mm-hmm. the blood or the trophy nourishments, rather what he'd call it. Uh, 
the and the food you know goes out and gets used up but he has a kind of a digestive and circulatory system it just doesn't come back mm -hmm. so it's not like a harvey system right and yeah. but it's, if you mess up with the, the purpose bad things will happen yeah and, and that's according to the four principle uh, humor theory so you try to balance it mm -hmm. and that, that's your first well, large yes. balancing of course a yeah. uh, principle yeah. and so but the balance would make no sense if there weren't a purpose mm -hmm. so you, you need a purpose and there's a purpose in evolutionary theory so we have purposes today mm -hmm. and and we we hold to them and we we look at them we can't do biology without uh evolutionary theory and that's very purpose-driven. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so I, I don't have necessarily see the, the the problem. I think the problem is cooked up by people who want to see the purpose as you know God working in nature for a particular design, yeah. and because that that really bothers them. Uh, you know, so sometimes a per person's personal worldview can create prejudices in which that 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 they take in what uh, we have an expression in the United States: you throw out the baby and the bathwater. Yep. Uh, and so you, sometimes you want to get rid of one thing, but if you're so, you know, uh, intent on, on solving one particular problem that you lose other possible directions. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of which, may I ask you about your worldview in that regard? Uh, do you identify yourself as religious? Or? Yeah, I'm theistic. Yes, I am. So uh, that's but but I try to write in such a way that I could be uh, equally attractive to uh, uh, to others who are not. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to be theistic to understand or accept my arguments for the, uh, human rights and, okay. and goods of agency uh, or the idea you mentioned earlier about money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would apply to them all. I rather uh, an interesting concept of religion is, for me, it's, it's answering a series of questions about life. Mm -hmm. Anyone who answers those questions in a sense, it's religious. They can be religious without a God uh, because they've answered the questions. Right. Uh, so I'm religious with a God, but uh, I answer them with that background. Oh, yeah. But you, but everybody has to answer the questions or they're living inauthentically. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was talking to some graduate students once at uh, Trinity College in Dublin, and I mentioned this to them, and they were really mad. They said, how dare you? Uh, say that I, I'm religious. <laughs> and they, they got off and they were just hopping around a little bit. And th thankfully, the sponsor of the, the lecture came. We all went to dinner. But <laughs> it was like Rumpelstiltskin in the story, you know, where Rumpelstiltskin, the, the, the princess or whoever, or, uh, finds his name and he gets really mad and's jumping up and down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there's something there that reminds me of something characterized quite harshly once as. Uh, let's see if I can find this. Being coherent and, and, and being comprehensive and, and having a theory of the good has taken part mm -hmm. in your worldview. And you once said that unless you're engaged in that project, you degrade your own humanity. Yes, yes, I, I think that. It's because uh, I feel this is necessary to be human, mm -hmm. because to be human is to be seeking the good and acting towards it. So if you haven't reflected on it and you're just taking someone else's view of the good, you are a slave. And as a slave, you're not human. So you're degrading yourself by, say, taking what the television or the Internet or your friends. or If you unreflectively take what other people tell you to do and just do it, or your husband or your wife. Or, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who want to tell you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 if you, and if you buy it, you know, past the age of what, I mean, majority, uh, 18 or something, you know, uh, when you're out, uh, either in school or in work, uh, then, then you are degrading your humanity because you're not doing what's necessary to do to be human. Right. And and I've never seen. I, I pose a question to students uh, frequently. Uh, how many of you would like to join another species? Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be a, a cockroach, uh, an eagle, <laughs> yeah. a dog, a fish. No one really wants those. Right. <laughs> they, they, they really think about them. You, know, you get a smart aleck student now and then will say, oh, I want to be a tiger because they're strong and they eat things. Uh, but if you really give them several follow-up questions, it's clear they really don't really want to be a tiger. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they honor <laughs> being a homo sapien. And so uh, there, there are requirements. You see, some people are so keen on what they think of to be free is to do anything they want. Yeah. But it's not to do anything you want. It's kind of, this is very Kantian in the sense that Kant says you're only free when you show your respect to and and uh, uh, to the moral law exactly. and 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 you act uh, according to it. That's free. 
if if you were acting any other way, it would be heteronymous. Mm -hmm. And acting heteronymously is this degrading thing, is you're being the slave. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so that, that would be the, the, the little strand there. You mentioned Kant earlier that, mm -hmm. that I uh, uh, gladly uh, take that. What about those who want a, just a pure hedonistic life filled with pleasure? Why well, I, I think that 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 they're probably involved in probably in inductive incoherence, because what they were really looking for is is this kind of pastiche of various happinesses that they've experienced. And they're trying to put them all together, mm -hmm. and I think it's self defeating. Again, I don't think this is again Kantian. I don't think you can will your happiness. I don't think there's anything wrong with happiness. Mm -hmm. you, if you have a happy day, enjoy it. Yep. <laughs> uh, you know, but happiness, you know, is uh, is is often looking forward and looking back. Plato, you know, talks about this in the Philebus and predates, uh, you know, the idea of the nozick pleasure machine by mm -hmm. uh, making actually the very same argument two thousand years earlier. Yep. And it's you know, it's really about thinking of yourself in a particular context, which matches a lot of things that you. Uh, normatively approve of in your worldview, and then if you have a, if you're lucky enough to look forward to it and lucky, lucky enough to remember it, those are those will greatly outweigh probably the actual event. Right. Uh, and they have to meet all those conditions for it. And it's not so much the pleasure; it's you experiencing the pleasure, mm -hmm. you with that worldview experiencing the pleasure, because you could you could experience all sorts of pleasures. I mean, you could experience say. Uh, I remember I had a uh, operation and they wanted to give me uh, too much um, morphine, yep. a painkiller, and I I wanted to get you know through it quickly. I wanted to start rehabilitation, and I thought that I'd do better with having less morphine and trying to you know use the pain to help me move. Okay, they give me like negative you know like this hurts too much. Don't do that yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and try to move step by step. And one level that's that actually is more happiness gives more happiness through less pleasure right yes if pleasure is a physiological uh, uh thing and happiness is some combination with that worldview and the things that you want to achieve mm -hmm. so uh i think a lot of people who are looking for hedonism are very unreflective and they're just looking for pleasure any way they can get it and and there's so many pleasures you know that that don't get you anywhere right uh and 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 if you like some particular food really well and and I give it to you and I tell you when you're halfway done with it that there's a, a a poison in there that you can't smell or taste in any way affects the food you're still going to get exactly the same pleasure <laughs> yeah. but you'll no longer be happy because you'll know in 5 10 minutes you'll be dead mm -hmm. <laughs> but but all the same pleasure is being stimulated yeah precisely yeah so so yeah I I I I think that that's that's a problem with the, the hedonistic approach right is it possible to go too far the other way as well, to become too reflective and, and too obsessed with being coherent? Yeah, yeah because that's that's idea that, you, again, you can control everything. Going back to the Mino, you know, that's, right. it's a gift of the gods. You yeah. know, there's, there, there's lots of things beyond your control. Uh, you largely can go through the personal worldview imperative, I think, under your control. Therefore, it's largely under your control to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, be happy with that. Right, yes. And then and and hope that you're lucky enough to get other sorts of happinesses as well. But you know, there's so there's so many people that have um, situations they're born into that really denies them a lot of pleasure and and happiness. Uh, if you're you were born in Haiti, which is the poorest area in the Western Hemisphere, uh, you have a much greater chance of brain damage before the age of ten because of the lack of vitamins. Yeah. And you didn't choose, unless you're Hindu, you know, you didn't choose the body, or it's not a, a reflection on your spirit of the body that yeah. you went into. So we can't say it's your fault for being born there, and <laughs> someone else's. Uh, they were such a good person last life; they're they're born of Bill Gates's family or something. That th these are all accidents, yep. and uh, and so um, you know, they, they coping with these accidents. There's so, so many accidents in life that aren't in your control, so you have to. Uh, you know, uh, live with those and, and accept uh, what you can do, make the best of each of those circumstances, have compassion on those who uh, it, it didn't happen to. That that effective goodwill uh, comes into play here. You know, the I didn't explain it really, but I, I take it to be starting with sympathy. 
because that's the emotional connection of two people. Right. Unlike empathy, which is seeing someone from something from someone else's point of view, and it's morally neutral. Because salesmen and torturers can be great at empathy because they know just where your breaking point is or yeah. just what will make the sale, <laughs> uh, and they can do it just for prudential reasons. But sympathy is a connection. I believe it's if it's level sympathy instead of someone up above saying, oh, I'm sorry for you, my inferior, such and such. If it's a level sympathy, uh, care response will, uh, will result. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the conjecture. It'll mechanically result. You can't have authentic sympathy with someone. Some people might say it's, I'm circular there, but because if you don't, then I say it wasn't authentic. But uh, you, if you if you're have this emotional connection with another person on a level, then you will have a caring response. Yeah. And the, the level... Uh, uh, sympathetic care, that three things I call philosophical love. Yes. And so uh, 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 loving someone in a philosophical way uh, to me uh, would involve uh, seeing these various differences of circumstance and the, the uh, position of chance in life and, and saying, yes, for myself, I'll try to make the best of it. I won't uh, you know, try to cry too much over my situation. And I'll do the best I can, t can to help others uh, uh, you know, feel good about their situation because philosophical love demands no less. Right, yes. <laughs> wow, listen, that's actually a perfect way to end this as well. Because, yes. Uh, so thanks a lot for coming out. My pleasure. Thanks. Well, there you have it. I, for one, completely agree with Boylan that there are certain things literature can do that philosophy cannot. It's important to emphasize that this also holds true the other way around, and I think the question of when philosophy and literature have to give place to each other is one of the things that divide us most radically as philosophers. Whether you see literature as primarily inspirational, or whether you see it as just a different way to philosophize, accounts for the much-debated distinction between so-called analytic and continental philosophy. I think this is something we really need to discuss more, given the current academic climate, which largely consists of highly specialized journal articles, where precision and robustness vastly overshadow any kind of literary virtues. There is much to be said for this, but we might also lose out on new insights and perspective if we don't allow for less stringent forms of provoking thought. I hope this episode provided some food for thought in this regard, in which case I'd be very happy to hear your views. Let me conclude this episode by asking a small favor of you. If you made it all the way to the end, I hope that means you found some value in this podcast, and I would be very thankful if you could help me spread the word uh, on social media, mailing lists, your blogs, or just by means of a good old word of mouth. There's a jungle of podcasts out there, and with a limited budget, there's only one way to spread the word, and that's with some help from you. Okay, that's enough for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be back for what is going to be episode 7, which will hopefully be coming up just before Christmas. <laughs>